Today's episode of Miss Congeniality is very aptly sponsored by Virtual Book Tour, the Book of the Month's podcast, which is now available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. When Book of the Month wanted to work together on this, I genuinely could not believe it. If you don't know, Book of the Month is an incredible book subscription service which sends members a book a month which they can choose from from five to seven books. Now they've launched a podcast called Virtual Book Tour which features a series of conversations between Book of the Month's editorial team and monthly featured authors. As you guys know about me, I think it is so special to give authors the space to share their own story and the origin behind their book and work. I'm always doing it on here and I'm doing it today as well. So what can you expect from this amazing podcast? Candid conversations about the book's themes and inspirations as well as insights into an author's life and career. After reading a book and then getting to listen to the author talk about it, it's like actually mind-blowing. I'm obsessed. It is now my dream to become a guest on this podcast because they feature a ton of debut authors, which I absolutely love. One of my favorite episodes was the Jennifer Hillier episode. They talk a lot about murder mysteries and being an author who writes about murder and writes crime and thriller type books. There are now over 50 episodes available for listening, so you can listen to Virtual Book Tour now on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I can't recommend it enough, and I am manifesting my guest spot very soon. Hi guys and welcome back to another episode of Miss Congeniality. I am so excited for this week's episode. It is the most excited I've ever been to share an episode with you guys. There are so many reasons why this is the case. One of them being I have on Miss Cheryl Strayed as this week's guest and we had the most incredible conversation. I was so starstruck the entire time but she was so kind and it's really true. They say never meet your heroes and I met mine albeit virtually and it was nothing short of exceptional so maybe don't meet your heroes if your heroes suck but mine doesn't and you guys are about to see why even if you're not a writer if you're just a person especially if you're like mid-20s and feeling stuck we talk a lot about those themes and I feel like it's really going to resonate with you guys but obviously since we have not had a sort of like solo just me episode in a while I do want to start off with like 10-15 minutes of just chatting and updating you guys and talking about all the things that are going on this week. So it's currently Tuesday, March 14th at 2.27 p.m. I love telling you guys the time. It just makes me feel like, I don't know, like, okay, we're checking in and this is when we're checking in. By the time you guys will be listening to this, my mom will have a new dog. Now, why is this poignant for you guys to know? I don't know. Maybe just because I'm excited about it. But if you guys don't know, now you know. Growing up, I had three dogs. Um, Most like well, I can't speak. Um, we had three dogs and we had three dogs at the same time for a really long time. So we got my first dog when I was in third grade and then the second dog when I was in fifth grade and then the third dog when I was in eighth grade. So they lived a long time, like the three of them together. Two of them were rescues and one of them was from a puppy store. Um, and the one that was the white lab with three legs that you guys are probably familiar with because he was in a lot of my TikToks. He unfortunately died of cancer two Thanksgivings ago, the little Cavalier who's like black and white. Her name is Sally. We rescued her from a puppy mill and she lived, um, like 10 years until, um, about like January of 2020, I want to say no January, 2021. 
And then the third is Sammy, um, my sweet baby boy. And he lived for 15 years and he outlived the other two when he was the first one to arrive. And so we've gone about two years now without a dog. And I think my mom, whoa, sorry. No, we haven't. It's been like a year, a year and a half. And my mom is just like ready for a dog. And I think she needs one for a variety of reasons, but I think it's gonna be really good for her. So she didn't tell my dad, but to be fair, she didn't tell my dad about the other dogs either. She just kind of got them because he would be like, no, we don't need a dog. But then he falls in love with the dog. That's just how it goes. So she got the dog. He's arriving in the middle of the night tonight. Um, his name will be Winston Churchill. There's going to be a hard launch um, seemingly before Friday. If not, don't tell anyone. I don't know why you guys would tell anyone. Now I'm like worried, but like keep it a secret. If I haven't posted about him, don't say anything. This is between us, but just check before you like, I don't know why you guys would give a fuck. Anyway, um, he's arriving in the middle of the night. So that's so exciting. Um, I'll get to meet him next week because I'm going to Houston on Thursday to visit my boyfriend's family and to go to the rodeo, which I'm so excited about. We're seeing Chris Stapleton. He's like my favorite country artist. So it's going to be a time. I love Houston. I love Texas beside their politics. You guys know Austin is my favorite city in the U.S. And I'll be back there shortly. But excited to be in Houston. If you guys see me out and about, make sure to say hello. It's going to be really fun. So I've really been home for like three days. And I'm just trying to get my shit together in those three days. But like there's a lot to be done. You know what I mean? And then, of course, maybe I'll get some backlash for this. But of course, I need to go to my boyfriend's family's house with like fresh nails, fresh hair, fresh spray tan, fresh lips. And he's like, why? And I'm like, because stop notifying me, computer. Like we're talking. Okay. That was so rude. Um, and I'm like, well, the reason that I need to be like on my A game is that every single time I visit, I'm on my A game. And every time they visit, I always make sure I'm looking my best. So like they don't know what it's like to see me look like shit. And it's not like they could just open the TikTok app and see me looking like shit every single day because I post myself every single day with like my hair looking insane and me looking unwell. It's not like they could do that. Surely no. So like it only makes sense that I have to look stunning to show up because I've done that every time in the past. So see, it doesn't make that much sense, but I do need all of those things. I feel like because <laughs> I genuinely don't know. I just like to feel good about myself and I like haven't been home in a few weeks. I'm like, I'm going to pamper myself, but obviously I have a ton of other things going on. And like, I'm literally leaving on Thursday at five o'clock in the morning. So it's going to be, it's going to be wild. It's the wild, wild west. It's going to be yeehaw rodeo moment. And I'm really looking forward to it. Okay. Now just some other random shit. If I influence you guys to do anything in your goddamn life, it's going to be to drink one of these poppy probiotic sodas. Bitch, they sent me these things and I'm like, oh, it's probably going to fucking suck. Like it's probably going to taste like Olipop, which I think is so bad. I'm sorry. I have to be honest and upfront. Do not buy that. If you've never had it, don't buy it. It doesn't taste like soda. And here's the thing. I like soda. I'm a Dr. Pepper girly. I love a fucking ginger ale. So like, but I know it's bad for me. And you know what? Everything in moderation. Okay. But I needed a beverage and I don't like Olipop. I don't really like, like, I would rather have water than like a Spindrift. My parents are fucking obsessed or like a LaCroix. Like I'm just like, meh, you know, sometimes I'll put like, um, a water boy in one of those, but I'm not like super into it. No, there are two beverages on the market that are really fucking good. And I'm actually like, I'm not sponsored. I'm just going to give you guys the background. Um, so the first one is Poppy and it's a probiotic soda and that's really it. Like it's a probiotic soda and it's so good. 
and it has probiotics and it's good for your gut and all the flavors are great. I'm drinking watermelon right now and I don't even like watermelon and it's so dank and good. And then the other one is swoon, which is just like um, a non-artificial like soda. Um, I don't think that swoon is like as healthy as poppy. I don't even know if either of them are healthy. Okay. Like they just say shit like, you know, nothing artificial and like gut. And I'm like, okay, fuck it up. Like yum. So, but the poppy can does say, what does it have in it? So you see, it literally just has apple juice in it. I don't even know. It's so good. Okay. So go get yourself one of those. Like, I don't even, I think you can get them on GoPuff. Go get yourself a poppy. That's number one. Okay, number two, I have had the hardest time switching from being like gluten intolerant to like fully allergic and like having to tell restaurants like I cannot have it and like cross contamination and like French fries. Bro, to the allergen community, like what the fuck, guys? Like this sucks. Like I keep forget. It's not that I forget. It's that I'll see a fucking menu that says GF and I'm like, okay, it's gluten free. I don't need to ask, but you do need to ask. But like, I've lived 24 years of my life, not asking. So all of a sudden having to do this mindset, switch of being like, I have to ask. And then if I don't, I, I got punished for it. So like one menu said GF and I was like, I'm going to be fine. And so I didn't say like no cross contamination, like no, this, no, that like double checking. And I was so unwell like my flight home from Florida sobbing because it hurts so bad and the girls who get it get it hurts so bad for me I get like rashes a rash immediately and then my stomach I get gluten belly like so bad and it feels like there's like two people having a knife battle in my intestines guys what the hell like and it's also closed my options because if I want a burger and fries which is like what my boyfriend and I get all the time on the weekend my options are now limited because I have to go to a place that's like going to be nice. And then if you're ordering, you have to go to a place that has a little box that says like gluten allergies that they like definitely don't touch it. And that's like basically just bear burger and bear burger is mid like bear burger is pretty mid. I think we can all agree. It's just that like I I don't know. I'm just complaining now, but I I'm I, if you have an allergy, bitch, like what the fuck is up with this shit? It sucks. It's horrible. OK, that's number two. Number three, I used to be like, I love having all four seasons. That is such a lie. Like I have realized with my travels to LA and Miami that I love spring and fall and summer, but winter and I are just like not girls. Like it is so horrible. It's gray and rainy and awful. And I'm just like, I'm so over it. And yeah, that's pretty much all I have to say about that. It's just like it's getting to this point in New York City where it's like every day is gray and rainy. And I'm like, I'm trying to do all the little tips for seasonal depression. I don't even feel seasonally depressed. I just feel seasonally like sad. Like, I don't think I'm at the place where I'm seasonally depressed. I just feel seasonally stuck. You know what I mean? I feel seasonally like shit. And I think we need to change that because it's becoming like really annoying. And I like miss I miss Florida. I never thought I would say that, but I miss Florida. Every week I get into a new thing on TikTok that like I see one video and then I go down a spiral and this week it's bed sharing. I don't know if you guys know what this is. Um, I didn't, but it's basically this thing where like you sleep with your baby in your bed with you, but it's like pretty dangerous if you're doing it wrong, I guess, or 
listen, I don't know what my take on this is. Like, I don't know. Like, it seems dangerous. Like, if I'm looking at it objectively, it seems like something I'm not going to do. But apparently, like, I understand that, like, the background of it is, like, a lot of women in, like, a lot of countries do this. And this is, like, their main form of, like, how they sleep with their baby. But then there's a lot of people on TikTok that are talking about, like, how their baby died because of bed sharing. And I will be honest with you guys, every video on my For You page is now about this topic. I cannot get it to go away. It's completely my fault. I was educating myself on both sides and all the information for two hours, even though I would not consider doing this in my life. And I simply don't have a baby and I'm not going to have a baby for so fucking long. I don't know why I watched this for almost an hour, but I did. And now every other video is like bed sharing, bed sharing, bed sharing. And I'm like, I don't have a baby. I literally don't have a baby TikTok. Like, I hope my phone's listening to me right now. I don't have a baby. So take me off that. The only other thing that I've been doing for multiple hours on end lately is reading. I'm like really in my good reading era. I've been loving reading. Most specifically City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert, which is like the best book I've ever read in the longest time. It's so good. And if you need a book recommendation, I cannot recommend enough. You need to read it. It's literally incredible so I've been doing a lot of reading which has been actually really good and healthy and like has felt really productive for me um obviously I watched the Oscars um the biggest upset for me was Jamie Lee beating um Angela Bassett um that was just not it I think we all agree I mean clearly we don't I've seen the discourse but we should all agree that Angela Bassett should have won and it's pretty obvious why she didn't and it's just I, we're not saying Jamie Lee doesn't deserve her Oscar. It's just like not this one. You know what I mean? Anyway, though, overall Oscars it was good. I felt bored, but that's just me. I feel like it's like the most like tame in terms of like, I mean, obviously last year was the slap of it all, but this year felt pretty tame. Like I liked the looks. I loved Lady Gaga's performance. I thought Rihanna looked fucking amazing and I loved her performance. Um, all of it good other than that one that one win I was kind of like oh probably not um probably not that Angela Bassett definitely deserved that or Stephanie Sue but like you know the only movies I saw that were nominated were Elvis and everything everywhere all at once um listen my attention span is so short so Elvis I did not like at all everything everywhere all at once I thought was really good I did see it in theaters, which gives me anxiety. So I think I need to see it again outside of theaters because I typically stray from movie theaters. just not my thing. Um, but yeah, I don't have much to report on that because I feel like it was pretty tame and like not at all very newsworthy. Oh, one thing that's newsworthy, Lindsay Lohan just announced that she's having a baby. I'm so excited for her. Like, that's awesome. Like she, I just feel like when you grow up with someone, like even like when they grow up in the public eye, it's just so nice to see them hitting milestones that they clearly wanted to hit and like being happy finally. So happy for her. I feel like that's it on the celebrity gossip news. Like obviously this Haley, Selena, Justin Gate is still going on, but you guys know I'm team Selena, ride or die. Like, you know, you know, that's me. So, okay. Now I'm just rambling on because I'm too nervous to get to the interview portion. But one other really exciting thing is that the podcast will be moving to a new platform I can't announce anything yet, but I'm really excited about it. We've got a female-run podcast platform, and we're going to have a producer and an engineer, and it's just going to be 
the quality is just going to get so much better, which is something I've wanted for so long. And I've poured now a lot of money and time into doing it myself, which I'm so down for because I love this. And it's like such a passion project for me. But I just am so excited to have that support from an outside source. And Jonathan is killing it on the graphics. And I feel like the guests have been great. But what really matters is what you guys think. So always let me know what your feelings are and thoughts are and who you want to hear as a guest and everything else. I've had so much fun taking this to the next level and I can't wait to take it to the next level now. Um, I think that's all from me, guys. I hope you have an amazing, wonderful, stunning, beautiful, lovely, fantastic weekend. I hope you do something nice for yourself. I hope if you need anything, you have someone to lean on or reach out to. You can always DM me instead of DMing an ex or a toxic person in your life. And I really hope you enjoy this episode. It's because of you that I got to have somebody of this stature and of of this importance on this podcast and it's because of you that I got to meet one of my heroes and interview her so without further ado enjoy the rest of the episode and I will see you next week hello everybody welcome back to another episode of Miss Congeniality I am so excited for this guest you guys know I've been hyping it up I can't stop talking about it she is a New York Times bestselling author and award-winning writer, and her work has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post Magazine, Vogue, and more. She's the host of two podcasts, Sugar Calling and Dear Sugar, where she gives the most tremendously beautiful advice. Her book, Wild, was adapted into an Oscar-nominated film starring the one and only Reese Witherspoon, and she is also my personal hero, so please welcome to the show, Cheryl Strayed. Hello, oh, Cheryl. <laughs> what a wonderful introduction. Hello. So nice to be here. Oh, oh my gosh. I'm so glad to have you here. I have to tell you, like, I cannot stop talking about tiny, beautiful things. Like lately, I've just been back in the moment with it. And my copy is so annotated. Like it is so annotated that I feel like <laughs> it's less your words and more mine. But it's cool because it's been annotated like a bunch of different times and different kind of like seasons of my life. I love that book. Oh, thank you so much. And, and you know, I love I love that you can go back years from now and look at that copy yeah. and see all of the things that you're like, you know, that you, that, that you used to think or the things you responded to that are different now. But I, yeah. but I will give you, I mean, I am an advice giver. I have to give you a piece of advice. Okay. There is a new 10th anniversary edition out with new, with extra columns. You need to get yourself a brand new spanking brand new copy. I do. So you can start taking notes for this, like the new, the new, oldest, more mature version of yourself. Okay. I'm going to take that piece <laughs> of advice because I love that book, but I always ask my guests the same question to start out. It's an icebreaker that I feel like people don't get asked. And the question is, what is your fatal flaw? And it is allowed to be something that you have resolved that you would never like to fix. Like you're like, I love this about myself and I'm going to keep it here, but other people might perceive it as a flaw. <laughs> so Cheryl, what, what is your fatal flaw? Oh my goodness. Okay. I'm supposed to just name one. I, I, I'm sure I have many of them, many. Of Whatever them. comes to mind. Like some people will be like, I'm obsessed with trashy TV. And some people will be like, here's some trauma. So it's, it's really up to you. Right. I mean, that's, that's my question. So I was like, which direction am I going to go in? So yeah. first of all, one of them, now that you mention it is that I just love reality TV. I, I yeah. just, that's, it's the thing I do when I'm just like completely needing to relax, but I've come to think of it as not so much a flaw. It's like, wow, you know, sometimes I do have to just be able to switch my brain off and watch some like, you know, some real housewives of whatever city I'm into. Yeah. But, you know, more seriously, I think that the, the fatal flaw that I have grappled with 
in so many different ways over my life. And I think at 54, I'm still on the journey of this. And that is learning how to not only say no, but to say no and then not feel like terrible about it. I, I'm yeah. such a people pleaser. Like mm. I think a lot of girls and women are. And it, it has worked for me really well. Um, I mean, that's why we take on that that sort of people pleasing is that it works. People people love us and like us when we do yeah. what they ask us to do and what they want us to do. And to learn how to say, I can't always do that. And then release myself of any sort of um, sense of guilt or apology, you know, um, to just simply be able to say to somebody, I adore you or I respect you or I love your work, but I just can't do this thing and then not feel any, any, any you know, bad about it at all. That's I'm on a journey of that. But yeah, I would say that 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 people pleasing aspect is my fatal flaw. I think that's really interesting because I feel like your choice to do the hike was something pretty intentionally selfish, which is like really beautiful and something that I talked to my audience a lot about. I'm curious, like when you were making that decision in that moment, how did you release yourself from like expectations or like, should this be the right thing that I'm doing right now? Mm -hmm. Like, how did you kind of grapple with that people pleasingness when you were making a decision that was like 100% for you? That was something that you were going to do alone for a while. Like, mm -hmm. how did you kind of, weigh those two things. Yeah. I mean, and I think, yeah, absolutely. I think it's such a great question because this is something that we talk about a lot. I think, especially again with girls and women, these words like selfish or ambition or, you know, those, those sorts of things take on very different meaning. They're very mm. gendered. And I think that we've confused the meaning of selfish, you know, to me, to be selfish is to say, uh, if I took something from you that, that we should be sharing, uh, because I want it and it doesn't mm. matter to me what that you that you also deserve or want something right I don't think it's selfish to say I need to have this experience by myself at this moment in my life mm. it's the opposite you know I, I didn't I didn't take anything from anyone by deciding that I needed to go on that so, solo journey but yeah. you're very correct that I did have to give myself a kind of permission. And I think that that's where we get into this idea, is this selfish or not? You know, for, yeah. for whatever reason, as much as so many of us have been taught, like say yes to other people so they'll love you, we've also been told a lot to say no to ourselves. Mm. And one of the most amazing things that I have learned over the, you know, over the course of sort of trying to figure out life and and evolve and grow is this idea that, that, I was unconsciously carrying around this sense that I had to get permission, you know, from, I don't even know who, sometimes those invisible yeah. forces out there who can say to you, it's okay if you, you know, take some time to go on a long hike, or it's okay if you have to say no to attending that party or that weekend gathering because you want to work on your book, or it's yeah. okay if you say, you know, I really need um, just to take a minute and take a walk by myself around the block right now because- yeah in this conversation, we're not getting anywhere. Those aren't selfish acts. Those are acts where we're actually not only respecting ourselves, but the people in our lives. Mm -hmm. And so reframing this idea of, of, you know, giving yourself permission to do the things that you need to do to be your whole self has been really liberating for me. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And I think 
You know, a lot of people, especially my listeners, have this concept or idea that they need to have their entire life figured out when they're 25 and they have to be like serving others and have all their ducks in a row and kind of like their 20s. I think there's this just general misconception that your 20s are meant to be this time where you have it all figured out. Mm -hmm. What do you say to that specifically? Like given this experience of like you've now given yourself permission that you're going to take this solo journey and you're basically going to reclaim your power in your life. What do you say to those, you know, 20 somethings who are like, I'm so upset that I don't have it figured out? Yeah, I would say that this idea of there being a quarter life crisis, I think is real. We often hear of the midlife crisis, but it, it is real that, that what you're describing, I think a lot of people in their mid twenties, they've, they've grown up steeped in this idea that, okay, you, you're an adult when you're 18. And then a few years after that, you're really supposed to know what are you, you know, who are you going to love and where are you going to live and what's your career going to be and how much progress have you made on your career? And what I can tell you from the vantage point of 54, du- you know, double the age of being in my mid twenties is that that idea is absolutely laughable. And, and yeah. every, every person who has lived through their 20s will, will, look, will tell you that, that actually what your 20s are about is so much exploration. And of course, you can't, you can't even know what you want until you explore many, many paths, until you have many, many experiences. And one, one of the things that comes up a lot I, I was even asked this this very advice in in the title column of Tiny Beautiful Things. It was from a letter writer who signed herself seeking wisdom. She's like, "What would you tell your twenty something self?" Oh, I love that one. And, <laughs> oh, thank you. And you know, I say a lot of things, but essentially, what it all boils down to is it's okay, and you're okay, and you do not know all the answers yet, and you never will, because life is a great and continuous unfolding. And your only job, the only thing that you have to do, quote unquote, is to live it and to keep moving forward with a sense of gratitude and curiosity and compassion and love. And you will not go wrong. That will not, you you know, you are not in the wrong place if you can say that that's what you're doing. And I really think that, um, you know, it's in some ways that kind of anxiety you describe that kind of sense of like, I should be this and I should be that. And I don't know the answer to this question. It, in some ways, it, it, it actually is, if you're going to be really honest, it's it's an expression of, of fear because it is scary to explore. It is scary to venture out on paths unknown. And so what I would say is to really try to re- remind yourself, think, think of, imagine the future self, you know, the 50-year-old looking back at this one, and what I can promise you is she's going to say, you're doing great and you're okay. So, yeah. you know, try to like take a piece of that wisdom from all the older people telling you that, yeah. including me. Yeah, I think it's crazy too. I feel like women specifically and and young women have this fear like tenfold because there's this like random societal expectation that's been ingrained in us that we're meant to like aspire toward like partnership and marriage and mm-hmm. like family and white picket fence and like you feel even more behind or even more anxious because you're like, this is an expectation that is weighing on me so heavily, whether it's from family or just like society in general. I think that that is one of the reasons why this like quarter life crisis that you um, mentioned gets so blown out of proportion for like people in my age range Mm -hmm. who are specifically women. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, what we're talking about is, is ultimately 
cultivating a sense of gentleness, you know, mm-hmm. just saying like, okay, I don't know. And I, I accept, I accept the questions. I, I'm going to be gentle with myself and, and pursue my interests and my curiosity and see what unfolds. And, and, you know, the other thing too, I want to say the flip side of this is, you know, people who are in their twenties who are like, well, actually I don't relate to this. I'm, I'm, I have this job and I have this lovely partner and I have a path and I know what I want and I know what I'm doing. What I would say is, is you're, you're wrong probably, you know, I mean, that's the beauty of life. It's like, you know, you have been very, very successful, right. At this young age. And what I would predict is in 20 years from now, you're going to be, you know, doing something that you couldn't imagine right now. That, yeah. that it, it's not like just because you have some success, it doesn't mean like, now this is who I am and this is what I do. Totally. Because life is that great and continuous unfolding. That's the, that's the good mm-hmm. news, not the bad news. It can feel scary, but like to imagine yourself in the future and to think that you can predict um, where you're going to be, what you're going to be doing, who you're going to be loving, if you're going to be in a partnership, if you're, you know, all of those things, you, you know, that you'd be wrong because you can't, you can't predict those things. Absolutely. And you kind of mentioned like this gentleness and being gentle with yourself. I'm curious in terms of your hike specifically, like you were alone for Mm. a really, really long time. And I think a lot of people have trouble being alone and also being gentle with themselves when they are alone. Can you just speak to, I guess, like loneliness in terms of that time period in your life and also what it was like to just spend all of that uninterrupted time with yourself? Yeah. It was powerful and and I really recommend it to people all the time. And I and I recommend it especially at points of transition in our lives. And that could be anything from transitioning from from youth to adulthood, like we're talking about with the sort of mid mid twenties time. It could be when you're, you know, moving away from a relationship or into a new city or a, any kind of transition, a new job, any of the transitions we have, those are powerfully open times. There are times that we're awake uh, in a more conscious and lively way than we are at other times. And to take some time alone, um, which inevitably does give you time to reflect, is a really important thing to do. I think of them, you know, especially if you do something alone, like I did go on a hike, do something that's, that's hard or that challenges you physically or that puts you in a foreign situation. Those are times that you get to see, I guess, a deeper uh, aspect of yourself you get to see uh, what what thoughts emerge when there's nothing there to interrupt you or distract you, and that can be an incredibly valuable and beautiful thing. And and the way it I think relates to gentleness is, um, in some ways, when I'm able to be the most gentle with myself is when I remember that I'm not alone. That I might feel heartbroken over, for example. And when I was in my 20s, when I was 20, 25, 26, I got divorced and mm. I was so heartbroken. And I had this sense of um, that I would never be loved like that again and that I would never love again. That's a really common thing you go through when you you know really have yeah. your first heartbreak. And to be gentle with myself in, involved not just being alone and thinking about it, but also remembering that we are all connected through our our pain and our joy through our triumph and our failure. And what I mean by that is just about everyone out there who's had their heart, you know, has either had their heart broken or broken someone else's heart. 
and in, in my case, I did both. I broke someone else's heart yeah. and broke my own is that, that, you know, they've had those feelings too. And there, there's something very tender to me about remembering whenever I'm suffering through the hardest times or grappling with the biggest confusions that there are other people out there who feel the very same way that I feel. And, and, and that those people have felt that way through all time. This is why literature is so important. Like you can pick up yeah. a book and read about heartbreak to, that somebody wrote 200 years ago and you can yeah. say, yep, that's me. And of course, that's also the power of tiny, beautiful things in the Dear Sugar column. You know, so yeah. many people will say, I really relate to that struggle because it's mine too. And and we can be gentler with ourselves when we remember that because I, I think sometimes we can get into this this sort of internal thing where we're saying, why am I, you know, why am I so stupid? Why do I feel this way? Why am I struggling? Yeah. Why am I making such a big deal out of this? Um, and when you read other people's stories or think about other people's experiences, you remember um, it's be the answer to that question is because you're human. Oh, I love that. And you mentioned relating to other people's words and it triggered a thought that there's a Dear Sugar column and I think it's about a man who had lost his son and I love that column. And like, I'm incredibly lucky that I've, I've had grief and loss in my life, but not so, so close to me as that would be. But that column, I think, obviously it's about losing someone, losing a son, but I feel like it could be about loss in general. And I've gone back to that column so many times and sent it to so many people because I'm like, this resonates with me, even though I'm not a man who lost his son. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's just beautiful how like, you're right, we're all connected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, thank you so much for saying that. That column is called The Obliterated Place. And that that was honestly one of the hardest columns to write because yeah. the man, as you said, I mean, he was in such pain. He was really yeah. saying, I don't even, I, I, I don't even feel like I can live because this pain is oh. so great. His 22-year-old son had been killed suddenly by a drunk driver it was his only child. And he just didn't know. He felt like a living dead dad, which is how he signed his letter. Yeah. And I love what you say about it, because that is exactly what I hope to do in the Dear Sugar column. And it's it's that, you know, you don't have to have had that exact experience to, first of all, relate to his suffering. But then in my answers, what I try to do is really, of course, address the specific question that's been offered to me, but also to expand it, to to invite others to think about, you know, really anytime they've felt that profound sense of loss or anytime they felt that sense that I can't go on or what is the meaning and purpose of my life. I really try to write it in that more expansive way. And and the advice I gave to him, you know, I said a lot of things, but what I what I did say is that all of us in the end the best thing we can do, the only thing we can genuinely do with, with, the th with our losses is to turn them into something else, to take what we learn from the suffering we endure when we lose something that matters to us and make something beautiful of it. And yeah. that is where we get into, I think, real growth. When you, know, when you can transform an experience um, that's the ugliest experience of your life and make it a beautiful one. Now, of course, it will never not be ugly that that man lost his yeah. son. And, and whatever loss, losses you've experienced, they will always be that, but mm. they can also be something else. Yeah, and I there's a line in there where you're talking about how his son's life, like th that life sentences can be lived in different time periods. They can be like five minutes long or 
50 years or 22 years. I just really like how you reframed that because like, you're right. It's not ever going to be less ugly, but like there's a way to look at his son's life as a whole thing. And I think you really did a good job of that. And like, that's something that has stuck with me ever since. Oh, wow. I'm so glad that, you know, that really came from my own experience. My, my mother died when she was 45. She died very suddenly of cancer and I was 22. And of course that set my life on a whole new course. It's the biggest loss of my life. And I've, I still think about it and grapple with it and grieve her loss today. But Mm -hmm one of the things I felt in my grief was so angry and sad that my mom lost her life so young. There was this sense of that she, you know, deserved to live for double that, right? Like, you know, we all think we get, should get to live into old age and this wisdom, uh, you know, that I received and wrote about in the Dear Sugar letter was actually received by my son Carver when he was really young. I think I, I, I can't remember, um, what I wrote, how young he was, but he was, you know, five, six, seven, eight. He said to me in the way that only kids can, he just looked at me and said, you know, some people's lives are eight years long and some people, some people's lives are 80. And, you know, the, this idea that, that, um, what, what really part of my grief was, is based on a a false assumption and really to accept that my mom's life was 45 years long and what a life it was and me encouraging that father to say, just accept that your son's life was 22 years long. And as painful as it is, it's true. And, And I do think that acceptance is one of the most healing things we can do because of course, if we, we can rail against the truth forever. And what, what happens when we do is we'll stay in our rage and we'll stay in our grief and we'll stay in our sense of injustice. But when you can accept, you can say, you know, when you can accept what's true is true, you can begin to learn how to live with it. Yeah. I, I want to talk about acceptance in the face of failure specifically. I've read about you that you were really afraid to fail before starting the hike because you felt like you had failed in so many ways. And it just seemed to me that you were so hard on this version of yourself, this young version of yourself back then. And I'm curious, like, how you can accept sort of like that rock bottom feeling and if you still hold the same definition of failure, like if you weren't able to finish the hike, would you have felt like a failure and and sort of what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that's really changed, um, one perspective is, is this idea of failure and, and the impact it can have on your life. When I set out on the Pacific Crest Trail in the summer of 1995, when I was 26 years old, I, I felt like I had ruined my life, mm-hmm. you know, and what I know now is I, I, that you kind of can't ruin your life, but like mm-hmm. even the worst, worst, worst things can happen. You can mess up in the biggest ways and have the biggest consequences and you can still take another step forward. You can still find a way mm-hmm. to redeem yourself, to recover, to make amends, to make good. So you're right. I was, I was really hard on myself. I didn't have the perspective of, you know, wait, this is just really kind of one moment in my life. And really what I was being so hard on myself about were just pretty, um, you know, common and and common things. Uh, I had cheated on my husband. I am not a cheater and a liar. At least that's Mm -hmm. what I 
believed about myself. That's that's that what that was at odds with my my moral core and my ethical values, right? And so I felt like such a failure in that regard. I had started using drugs and that was like not not really who I was. It was not what yeah. I wanted for my life, right? And so but I was very hard on myself and I think that that the process of of hiking the trail was a process in some way of saying I I need to you know, there again, back to gentleness, be gentler on myself, forgive myself, accept myself for who I am, which is to say good and bad, like all of us, somebody who screws up sometimes and does the right thing other times, like all of us. And most importantly, you know, I think I taught myself how to go on that. That is the beauty of walking or, or long distance hiking, especially I think is like your body actually is the teacher. Your body teaches you what you need to know on the inside. So when I had to keep putting one foot in front of the other, even though it hurt, I was doing that in the physical world with my body. But the, the more powerful change was that kind of acceptance within myself where I was saying, I don't think I can live without my mom. But look, here I am living without her. I don't think mm-hmm. I can forgive myself for the, for the you know, bad things I did, you know, lying to my ex-husband who, who I loved. And, you know, then realizing, no, I can move forward. I can say sorry to him. I can be different going ahead. I can yeah. make better decisions to, that, that protect my, my best intentions. You know, all of those yeah. things came to me over time through that sense of acceptance. It's like you were like with each step proving that self inside of you saying like, I'm a failure. I'm at rock bottom. Like you're proving yourself wrong with each step. Absolutely. And, and that's it. It's like, you know, that's what we do. I think, you know, when we, when we keep living and keep trying and keep trying to do the, you know, the next best thing, um, you, you really just, you can't stay in that place of, of regret and self hate and, you know, and that sense that I'm a bad person instead of a good person. Yeah. So let's say somebody wants to like find their wild because that's kind of like, that's the book. That's what you say you did. The the last like two lines, how wild it was to let it be like fucking insane. I think about it all the time. (laughs) Actually, in my high school, we were taught your book in English, just like regular English. And honestly, I was so like grateful because I just went to a public high school in New Jersey and we our curriculum was curriculum was like canonized American literature, which is like all white men, Yeah, which just like is so disparaging to me, especially because I'm sitting there like, I know Zelda Fitzgerald wrote half of this shit. Like, I hate this. <laughs> and then we we did your book. And I, I remember like, I remember the first time I read it. I'm curious, like, let's say somebody wants to find their wild, but they don't have the physical means to take the sort of leap that you did or they maybe can't go on like a physical journey. Right. How would you recommend that that person find their wild? Yeah. Well, I think that, I think that it's, it's always, you know, the, the, the sort of core key points of that experience for me is that I, I did do, as you said, like I decided to do something just for myself Mm. and I knew that I needed to do something that would challenge me, that Mm. would take me out of my comfort zone and that would put me really very much at the driver's seat, that I would be the one who was suffered the consequences of all the mistakes I made and also got to celebrate the, the, the victories of all my triumphs. You know, I mm-hmm. had to really do something that was undertake something that would would be hard for me, but that I could do alone. And I think that, of course, when we go on a journey, like go on a long hike or a long, you know, 
this is why people train for marathons, right? And yeah. um, th those sort of physical feats are really a great way to to you know challenge challenge yourself in the ways that I just talked about. But of course, yeah. I think there are other ways to do it. You know, um, I think sometimes people it, it can literally just be like make a list of all the things that really scare you. Um, mm -hmm. Be really honest. What are the things that scare you? And mm -hmm. commit yourself to doing some of them. One, one, another tactic I do is every once in a while, I'll just write a letter to myself, dear Cheryl, you know, and this is what, here, here's a little assignment for you and for your, okay. for your listeners, you know, dear, okay. and then write your name. And then the first line, this is your wisest inner sage or your wisest inner voice. And here is what I know that you need to do. And then write mm. the rest of the letter. Okay. So just have a conversation with yourself on paper or on the screen from that deep voice within you who knows what you need to do. And almost always something really amazing emerges. And the trick is then to do it. You know, read that letter, that, that letter to yourself every day and make good on those things that your wisest self knows you need to do. We all, we all have that. And I just want to say, this isn't something we have once. This is something that we have over and over again. And like I said, I do this on occasion. And it is like a way of just checking in with the self and, and saying, I need to wake up and I need to be a little more wildly honest and a, a little more wildly brave. Mm, that's, that's amazing. Well, speaking of writing and writing prompts, I want to talk about your experience as a writer. So many people know you as a writer and I mean, you're an incredible writer. And I think a lot of my listeners are writers. A lot of them are readers. And I want to talk a little bit about as it relates to writing, rejection and criticism, I feel like when you're putting yourself out there, especially when it's like personal stories, there's always going to be sort of like haters and criticism. And I'm mm -hmm. wondering like, how do you grapple with and handle that? Like, how have you become okay with that? Because I feel like it's inevitable, you know, like there are going to be people all the time disagreeing with you or even disliking you. Mm -hmm. What does that sort of look like for you? And how do you kind of think through that? Oh, it's such a big question. And and yeah, I, I mean, I feel like you and I could talk for hours about this. Yeah. First of all, I want to say, you know, I'm not okay with it. It hurts my feelings when people hate me. It yeah. hurts my feelings when people are mean to me. Mm. And that, you know, that's okay. Like that's human. I, I think that it's not a requirement of the job to be like, yeah, I, you know, I think it's great when people trash me online or yeah. in public. Right. So I just want to say, you know, and, and the reason I say that and start with that is because I do think it's really important for everyone to hear that and remember that the people we know publicly, like who are quote unquote, you know, we know them because they're famous, but all that means is, yeah, they have some kind of public exposure and we feel like in some ways what, what happens is they get a little dehumanized by that. Like we can mm -hmm. criticize like what they're wearing or what they look like or what they said that one time in that one little clip that you heard. And yeah. we forget that they're really a whole human in there. Yeah. And so what, what I've done is I first, I, I really totally embrace and acknowledge um, that I don't expect everyone to, to love me or to love my work. I mean, I think it's, I have no, I have no argument at all with anyone who reads, reads any of my books and they're like, yeah, not my cup of tea. That's fine with me. Yeah. Um, and but I just, what I try to do is just keep that perspective is that like, not everyone's going to love what you do. 
Um, some people are going to absolutely love it and say it's life changing. And, and I think you're magnificent and other people are going to say, eh, and then other people are going to say, I absolutely hate what you wrote. And yeah. most people will be indifferent. And so I try to keep that perspective that like, you know, you can't get everyone to love you. I try not to read my reviews, um, yeah. because I found early on that, that even the praise, frankly, can be just, it sort of takes you outside yourself and you start to find yourself wanting to perform and please, you know, like mm. what I realized very early on in my career is I, I can't write, I can't write anything because I think it's going to please some, somebody out there. You mm. know, I have to really write from my heart and then hope for the best. And yeah. so to remember that is good. So, so I guess like, you know, the, my strategies are, you know, say out loud that I'm human and it hurts my feelings when people are mean, try to avoid as much public public conversation about me as possible. Mm -hmm. And always try to remember um, that, that, you know, anything, anything that any of us do is going to be met with varying, you know, amounts of praise and criticism and just go onward um, and, and not put it at the center of the reason that I do my work. Yeah, I'm I've made the decision after talking to like a lot of authors mm -hmm. that I won't be reading reviews unless like someone on my team or like a family member sees one that's like they want to share like a snippet of something that's like so lovely, but otherwise I just don't feel the need and I think a lot of like of those same haters will say, "Well, you can't take criticism." And that's like a big thing that they throw at a lot of like internet personalities and for me, I struggle with it so much because I'm like you coming onto my Instagram and telling me your writing is elementary and bad. That's just not criticism. That's just being like you're bad behind a blank profile. Like that's negative. Like criticism is when my editor says like, hey, this paragraph isn't working. Mm -hmm. Let's try it in a different light. We're going to cut this because we feel like this chapter doesn't fit. Like that's criticism. It's so insane to me, sort of like the conflation of all of that in the media, especially. Oh, for sure. And I, and I think that, yeah, I mean, let's put it this way. Nobody commenting in your social media, on your social media sites that's saying you can't take criticism is that is being, you know, genuine or sincere or honest. And yeah. they're, they're, they're projecting whatever struggle they're having about you onto you. And, and that mm -hmm. is another thing is there are some people who just you know, they're going to say hateful things to you. And it really is a story about them, not about you. Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, can you even imagine, I, I, I cannot imagine commenting on anyone's no. social media no. saying anything nasty, to be honest. Like I, I say just, this every day. Can't imagine it. Yeah. And so that's really like a, an issue they have. So to really try to remember that people are projecting themselves onto you is really important. And, you yeah. know, I do read reviews like, you know, if, if I get like a beautiful review of the New York times or something, I of course read that. I'm, I, I'm yeah. really talking about those, you know, I just like Amazon book reviews or those sorts of things, because you do get down that rabbit hole where it's just a, it's just a house of, of, of crazy, you know, people's projections and yeah. assumptions. And, you know, my favorite thing is like people who, you know, for example, like hate wild and they've never read wild. Yes. You know? It's like, yes. you know what, you know, and, and I'm like, okay, you have the right to hate my book or, or also, you know, if they want to tweet something um, nasty, it's like, okay, just don't tag the author in that, I, you know, that's my number one thing. Why are you tagging the author that, that then becomes, it's no longer like, here's my opinion. I want to open a discourse and I want to harm this person. 
Yeah. 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 But, but I will, I will say too, like in this projection thing, a lot of people, they do forget that you're a person. I've had just a couple of experiences. I usually, um, don't acknowledge, you know, when somebody says something like that to me, but, but one time this woman tweeted something like she was furious that I had written this book about walking a long distance when, um, you know, all of these people in, in really desperate circumstances were walking, um, across, you know, dangerous deserts to immigrate to the U S from Mexico. And I immediately, uh, like tweeted back to her, like essentially like, you know, I I don't know what you're talking about. Like my, of course I have profound compassion for those people that this, that wild's not about wild's about taking a wilderness journey. I'm making no comment whatsoever on the, the plight of, of people who are coming to the U S for a better way to live. And she was just immediately then DMing me these long messages saying, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. You know, I was just upset. I didn't, you know, and I, and I realized like she, and she said to me, I kind of just forgot you were a person. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, oh, but no, there is a person in here. And, and she completely took the tweet down, apologized to me. And it was really instructive to me because she was embarrassed. And she did say like, you know, I was just mad and projecting it onto you. It was right there. Yeah. I mean, that kind of feels good. Yeah. <laughs> like it's a shame it happened, but once you get the person who's like, damn, sorry, you're a person. I don't know why I did that. Yeah. That's happened to me before. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to talk a little bit about your process. I know all writers have a different process and I would just love to know, like, what is your ideal writing day, writing moment? Is there a specific time? Do you need to have any specific tools or a specific environment that you like? Well, you know, as somebody who's been a writer now, really all of my adult life since I was about 19 or 20, I, of course, I've worked a million other jobs too, you know, don't get me yeah. wrong, not always supporting <laughs> myself as a writer, but, but, um, in my twenties and thirties writing a lot and, and su- supporting myself other ways. And then luckily, um, in my forties and fifties being able to write full time, but in all the ways I've had to adapt to different, different writing routines. My, my absolute favorite thing is every writer's dream. You know, you're, you're at some beautiful little cabin, you know, in the woods and somebody's bringing you, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, like I've, I've had some writer's residencies over the years and those are the ideal places where you're just like completely left alone to write and you get to sink not only into hours of writing, but all of that time around writing, which is, that, that silent time where you go on walks or you read other books and you, you get to contemplate what you're doing. Like that's the ideal. Now there's also this thing called actual life. (laughs) You know, I don't get to have that ideal very often. In that case, what I've had to do is just really make a commitment to myself, make a schedule, um, be really um, strict with myself because of course I, I like, just about every other writer on the planet, when you sit down to that blank page or that blank screen, you know, suddenly that little voice in your, in your head says, you know what, why don't we do just like something else for a little while longer? And then we'll yeah. go. Right. <laughs> oh, and then we'll do it. <laughs> wash the dishes. Oh, let's read this book. Let's, you know, and um, then we'll do it. Then we'll do it. And I say, no, no, no. So I try to quiet that voice and get to work. And, you know, I've had to write sometimes, you know, under great duress, you know, when I was like the mom of, babies. I had, my kids are 17 months apart. So I had two kids under the age of two. When I was writing um, my first book, 
Torch. I sold my first book, Torch, when I was pregnant with my first child. By the time it came out, I had two kids under the age of two. And Damn. then I wrote Wild, and they were like these little toddlers. And, yeah. and it, I look back on that time, and I think, how did I do that? And the answer is, is I just, you know, I took an hour here and there. I took those times where I could have a whole day and do it. And I, I think that the biggest thing for any writer to sort of integrate into their habit is to say, I will make a commitment and I will follow through with it, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be writing every day. It doesn't even have to be writing every week, but it does have to be a life in which you make some room for writing. Yeah. So you say, write like a motherfucker. Yeah. And I love that essay. <laughs> I'm curious, like, how does one do this? And you also speak a lot about how writing is difficult for you. And I feel like that's really refreshing to hear because as someone who like is a literary icon for so many writers, like so many writers aspire to be at your level, to like have such a grasp on words the way that you do. Can you walk me through that all? Like, how do you write like a motherfucker? And how do you write like a motherfucker when either it scares the shit out of you or it's kind of hard for you? Yeah. To me, writing like a motherfucker means ultimately really deeply trusting yourself and saying, I am not going to sit around and worry about whether what I have to say is important or that people are going to like what I've written or anyone's going to be interested in it or if it matters or if it's good enough or any of that stuff. But that what you concern yourself with is what is inside of you and you concern yourself with getting all of that out, that you don't that you don't write to please people, that you don't write to publish, that you write with wild abandon what's in your mind, what's in your heart, that you trust your intuition, that you follow where the writing leads you, that you say what on the page or on the screen what you're absolutely terrified to say out loud in your own life, that you trust that it's going to be okay if you tell the truer, the truest truth that you could possibly bear. And what I've found when I write in that way, which is the way I write, um, is that all of the fears I have about being rejected, about people saying, why would I want to read this? Or you're too much, or you're, you know, yeah. like, I'm going to judge you, or you're a bad person. All of those fears disappear because it, so many people say, oh my goodness, me too. I see myself yeah. in your work. And it's because, you know, I really do genuinely give it, I give all of myself to that. Um, yeah. I'm incredibly rigorous with that kind of emotional abandon. I'm also rigorous about apprenticing myself to the craft. You know, I, writing, I, I talk a lot about giving your whole heart to writing, but it's not, it's not only that. It's true that I also, uh, especially in my 20s, but honestly, through my whole writing life, I feel like I'm always learning. I'm always the apprentice. I'm always looking at somebody's beautiful sentence and saying, wait a minute, how did they do that exactly? And studying it and trying new things myself. And, you know, taking craft seriously, honoring yourself as an artist by actually um recognizing that the words matter very much, um, never being done with something just because you think it's good enough. Now, of course, you know, nothing's ever perfect, but if you feel that one more draft can make it better, make it better. Make it better. 
you know, those are all ways to have motherfucker, motherfucker too. That's what I call it. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I sometimes teach this, uh, this class about like the qualities, you know, of good writing and, um, they, you know, the final one is motherfuckitude, and it has to do with that kind of courage and commitment I'm talking about. You mentioned being afraid of being too much or kind of perception in that way. And I think a lot of women and girls feel really concerned about that. And you have the word <laughs> feminist in your Instagram bio. And I think that there's just like this incredibly conflated conversation around feminism in 2023. So I'm curious, like, what is feminism to Cheryl? Because I like to hear people's personal definitions and how they view it in the world because I feel like it's become this thing that honestly confuses and scares some people who feel like they're feminists but feel like they're not doing it right or feel like, am I being too much? And it becomes this sort of, like, anxiety around something that's supposed to be liberating. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great question. And and it's interesting because I would say that – all of my life as a feminist, and I have been a, a feminist all of my life since I learned the word when I was like six. Mm. Um, feminism has been fraught in that way. I mean, there's always this confusion and conversation and, and you know, th that you have to even defend what it means to be a feminist. When I was your age, it was always like, I would have to say things like, well, I'm a feminist, but I don't hate men. You know, like it, you yeah. always had to sort of reassure, you know, yeah. like, no, 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 I'm not anti-man, you know? And, yeah. and I think that for me, the, the original definition of feminism that I took into my heart when I was six has, has never changed. And that is quite simply that I believe that women and girls um, have the right to the full range of their humanity and specifically the full range of humanity that that is granted without question to men. I also think that men and boys have that. I think people of yeah. all genders are absolutely freed by feminism because what it seeks to do is say we are all regardless of gender identity um or you know or biology allowed to feel all the things we feel, experience all the things we experience, want all the things we want, and pursue all the things we want to pursue. That we should not be bound by ideas of what men do or what women do or, or um, by, by sort of uh, sort of opinions of qualities. Women shouldn't be ambitious. That's something that I grew up in. When I was, honestly, when I was a young writer, um, I was always unapologetically ambitious. I never said I wanted to write a novel. I said I wanted to write the great American novel. And yeah. people bristled at that. And I always yeah. thought, well, what did you think? You know, is there really any writer out there who wants to write the second best thing? Now, yeah. of course, I don't believe there is a best thing. I really don't believe there's a great American novel. And so it was never that I was saying um, that I think that these things can be ranked. But what I was always saying is I really want to achieve everything I can possibly achieve. And I refuse to be bound by your ideas about a, what a woman should want. And so that's, you know, that's what I think feminism is. I think it's liberating to all of us. Yeah. I think I definitely see that playing out in my own life. Like people are really like disturbed by female ambition, mm -hmm. especially when it comes from I'm like a pretty non-confrontational, like friendly, like feminine woman. And I think like people don't either don't take my ambition seriously or are like incredibly turned off by it. 
And it's crazy to me, like my whole childhood, I felt like people were always telling me like, oh, you, you like too many things you want for too many things. You're all over the place. And I'm like, when a man has a lot of interests, it's like, you're well-rounded. You're so interesting. And that was always something I struggled with where like my want and ambition was so like disturbing to people. I feel like. Yeah. It's like you were too much. You were supposed to put yourself into a kind of box. And then and then also other people, it sounds like, put you in a box that's that's yeah. extremely familiar, I think, to a lot of girls and women. And especially if you do have that kind of affect, like, I mean, you and I both do. We're like yeah. kind of sweet and nice and friendly and cheerful and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how many times I have been underestimated because of that yeah. or, you know again and again, and this still happens with my work and I've had to really learn how to, um, just be ready to confront it whenever it comes up is that people will say they'll frame my work as being for women. And, Mm. you know, and of course it's like, yeah, a lot of women do read my work, but a lot of men do too. And I have so much fan mail from men, you know, and it's like, why, you know, what, you know, very seldom do you hear an interview with a male author where they say, now, listen, your latest book, it has been a big hit with men, men love it, you know, and it's like, you just, we don't just say that to a male author. We just say your book has been a hit. And so, you know, I've gotten used to saying, well, oh yeah. And men, men love it too. It's been a hit with men too. And just sort of that gentle corrective where you're saying, you're pointing out like usually what's very, you know, uh, uh, unconscious bias, an assumption that that yeah. person has made about you because you're a woman and you've written yeah. about a woman and they're like, oh, yeah. it's for women. It's like, no, no, it's for people. It's and, for you know, I don't think that the people who make those assumptions are actually trying to be sexist or put me in a box, but that's what they're doing. And I think that we yeah. need to change that. Um, we yeah. need to to change that, you know, in, in not just our own work and the way we talk about our own work, but the way we perceive others, um, work too. Yeah. That's awesome. So I have, I have some listener questions that they wrote in with, um, awesome. kind of like more rapid fire, fun ones. Okay. Rapid fire. Here we go. We love it. So the first one is what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Oh gosh. So many great pieces of advice, but I, I have to quote my beloved mother when I was complaining about things when I was a teenager and be like, oh, I'm having an hour day. She would always say, Cheryl, it's up to you to put yourself in the way of beauty. If you, you will always have difficult times in your life. You will always have days where nothing seems good, but there's always a sunrise and there's always a sunset and it's up to you to be there for it. Put yourself in the way of beauty. And I cannot even begin to tell you Ellie, like how many times I've thought about that because there have been hard days. And and one of the hard, you know, many of the hard days, of course, came when I was grieving her, you know, deep, deep grief right after she died. As I said, I still yeah. grieve her. But back when I couldn't find the light in a day, it was her advice that guided me to it. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. So our next one, what is one of or some of your favorite authors to read? Oh, goodness. I love so many writers. I'm always like, ah, um, like all of them. my, my absolute favorite writer of all time is Alice Monroe. She's a Canadian mm-hmm. short story writer. Um, and she won the Nobel prize in literature several years ago and she is so deserving of it. She's just always blows me away. She's, um, quite old now and, and isn't writing anymore. She's re- retired from writing, 
but I go back and read her books every now and then a couple times a year. I'll just pick up one of her books off the shelf. And I remember all over again, why I love her so much. She's absolutely a classic, beautiful, astonishing writer. And I encourage you to check her out if you don't know her. Yeah, I definitely will. I feel that way about Joan Diddy and I'm always just like, Oh yeah. Going back, going back. And I remember like when she died, I was like, Oh my God, that's it. Like we have, we have what she wrote and it's done. Yeah. And like that like hit me in such a way, a way, but then I was like, but I always can just go back and I'm going to find like new things. Yes, absolutely. And Joan Didion and Alice Monroe are contemporaries. So um, yeah. yeah, they'd be fun to read together. I love Joan Didion as well. Yeah. I love her. Okay. The next one. What are you most proud of? Mm, great question. You know, what I'm really proud of is how far I've you know, how far I've come. Um, I, I didn't, I, I really, I grew up poor. I, I didn't know anyone like me could be a writer mm-hmm. and I didn't really, you know, I paid for my own college education. I, I really had to kind of make my way myself. And I'm really proud of that. You know, I'm really proud of that. I, that I kept the faith. Um, you know, it could, would have been a lot easier for me in my twenties and, and early thirties when I was writing and writing and writing and waiting tables and working all these jobs and, you know, trying to pay off my student loan and just really struggling financially. It would have really been easier for me to take that more financially secure path and just say, okay, this writing dream is, is nice and everything, but I need a real job. And I never did that. I always trusted myself and I always stuck to that, that, that vision of my life. And I made it happen against the odds. And I I must say, I'm proud of that. Yeah. And we're glad you did. Thank you. (laughs) On the converse, what are you most afraid of? Oh, for sure. It's, you know, I know this is just like your typical, like mom worry, but you know, I'm, I, my, I have have two kids, they're 17 and 18, a daughter and a son. And, and I, I always just want them to be safe and happy and thriving. And I know we can't keep our kids (laughs) safe and happy, but you know, I just, my biggest fears are always all about, about them. Um, Yeah. What is some advice that you would give to 20 something writers who are on a similar journey, hoping to make a career out of this? To focus on the work that you're doing, not about the, the external uh, validation you're receiving or not. I, I hardly published anything in my 20s uh, because I was more consumed with producing the work and, like I said, apprenticing myself to the craft and spending the time doing the work. I think a lot of people do things like they want to rush to get an agent you know, because it feels validating or they want to rush to get some piece, pieces published on the internet because then people can say, like, good job, you really are a writer. And there's nothing wrong with those things, but, but I think that there's something really powerful about, you know, doing the work for a while and seeing what it feels like to you and feeling, you know, growing in your own sense of accomplishment and confidence outside of that external validation, because you're going to need it all along the way as a writer. I love that. What is the first thing you recommend someone do when they're like ready to reclaim their life and reclaim their power? Like what's step one? Wow. <laughs> that's a, that's a big one. Ready to reclaim. Well, you know, I mean, I think that, 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 that readiness um, is the beginning. That is step one to say, I've realized that I need to change or I realize I need to um, grow in this way. 
And I would say to remember that that transformation doesn't happen all at once. Like we have those big awakening moments that feel like huge and profound and they are huge and profound, but then the way that we actually carry them out and make that change is one step at a time. And so to think about day by day, you know, how do you today walk in the direction of your truest intentions and do that? And by the end of the day, you're not going to get there to that destination, but you're going to get closer and the days accumulate. And then you find yourself stepping into your power. Yeah. So the last question is selfishly going to come from me since I have you here. Um, I have my debut coming out in the winter and it's narrative nonfiction. Thank you. It's personal essays. And I think, I don't remember the exact quote, but there's a quote in something that you've written about how your first book has a birthday yet and you don't know what it is. And I've recently found out the birthday. I can't tell everybody yet, but it's going to be in the year 2023. And I feel very afraid. Like I think for a while I was like living in imposter syndrome. And now like I went from being like delusional to just scared. And I was wondering like if you have any words of wisdom for me or really for anyone that's about to have a big life change or something's about to happen, what would you say? Well, you know, you're scared because something really scary is about to happen. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Something really wonderful and very personal to you. You know, the stakes are high. This is a book you wrote and you're going to bring it into the world and you want the world to love it. And the world's going to do what the world does with the things we love that we put into the world. Like, what did I just say about my kids? You know, I can't keep them happy and safe and thriving. Like, I don't really have that kind of power, right? And you need to learn how to simply accept your fear, you know, embrace that sense of terror and recognize it for what it is, which is a a beautiful, a, a beautiful body awareness that you've done something that's really matters, that you've done something powerful and beautiful that's so important to you. And so if you can kind of get to that place and just experience um, that fear as just, frankly, a recognition of of your power, that fear will be sort of, will settle in you in a little bit. It's, it's kind of like, you know, I was talking about grief and how hard it is to lose somebody, right? And yet at core, what what is grief? You, It's love. You would never suffer that much if you didn't actually love that person you lost. And that ultimately then is a really beautiful thing. And I think the same way about the fear that you're feeling about the book or the fear that other people, you know, might feel about some big moment that they're stepping into. Is it just all it is, is is your body's way of saying that this is really important and you did it and it's going to be okay. Yeah, I think I have to remind myself it's going to be okay. <laughs> it's going to be okay. It is going to be okay, you know, and that's yeah. the thing about um, it, it. What I always like to say is I, it's going to be okay, even if it isn't, you know, yeah. even if like whatever ideas you have about like what, what okay means right now, you know, you win the Pulitzer Prize or whatever it is, yeah. you know, um, that, that like it will, it will, it will have its life and its journey and it will bring interesting and, and important things to you. Yeah. And we're going to celebrate the birthday either way. Cause what else do we have? Oh my like- goodness. And just do my, my other, I thought you were going to ask what you should do on your pub day. You know, the, Oh, I kind of want to know that as well book now. Birthday. Well, <laughs> since it is a book day? birthday, I highly recommend a cake and not just yeah. a cake, but like, you know, 
get one of those cakes where it has like they do the like the book cover on your on oh your yeah because like when else do you get to do that yeah when else do you get to have your book cover on a cake you get your book and your and you get to eat your cake and, and you get to eat it too yeah <laughs> you, get, you get your book and you get to eat it too I love that okay well <laughs> now there will definitely be a cake involved okay when you do it take a picture and put it on your Instagram so I can see it I will. And Cheryl, thank you so much for being here. Can you please tell everybody where they can find you if they haven't already? Oh, yes. Well, I'm. you can find me, Cheryl Strait, on Twitter and Instagram and also on Facebook and also on my website. And I also just want to say I do a Substack Dear Sugar newsletter uh, once a month, the last day of every month, a new Dear Sugar column comes out so people can subscribe there as well. Definitely subscribe. You won't be disappointed. Thank you so much. This was amazing. We are so grateful to have had you. You're the best. Ah, it was really wonderful talking to you. And I'm wishing you all the best luck on your book and life and many, many happy trails. Thank you. Bye, Bye. Cheryl. Bye, everybody. Bye.